Um, we are wrapping up a series here that we've been doing in the book of Exodus. And no, in one sense, this isn't a formal Thanksgiving sermon at all. If you want that, you can come at 5 o'clock. I'm doing a thing for Kelly's class. But honestly, I would say by the time we get to the end of this story, if we're not grateful, we haven't heard the text. So it is an opportunity to do that. But we've been walking through the story of the book of Exodus and looking at how um, that models for us a journey into God's deepest adventure. And so I want to go to um, the text that is launches the last part of the book, the construction of the temple. We talked about some of that before, but I want to take you to this and we will end um, with the final words of the book. But let's look at this central story. If you have your Bibles, your devices, we're in Exodus 33 and this is picking up right where you don't, every sermon hopefully is self-contained, but if you've been following us or if you haven't been, we ended last week uh, with the story of Israel's most epic failure. God is literally handwriting his covenant vows of relationship with his people on top of a mountain, and they are on the bottom of the mountain prostituting themselves to false uh, idols and gods. And so the text leaves off with this kind of tension. Will God continue to go with them? And God lets them sit in that for a while and listen to last week's sermon if you want to know uh, at least what I think is going on. He doesn't have to be convinced to be gracious, but they don't know. They're sitting in uncertainty as this story begins. So this is the word of the Lord, Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone seeking the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You said, I know you by name and you found favor with me, but if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do do the very thing you asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And Moses said, now show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, There is a place near me 
where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect we all have seasons of life like this one way or another, but have you ever felt bullied by life itself? Have you ever been in a spot where you feel kind of just pushed around by the circumstances of life? There have been times in your world and in your circumstances where you have felt inadequate or overwhelmed or insecure or afraid in some way. I suspect all of us have times like that. I'm obviously using this idea of being bullied by the world as kind of a metaphor or a symbol, uh, but sometimes it's quite literal. I've shared this story with class, I think, but I know when I was little, I was actually bullied a couple different times in my life. The worst time was in middle school. Pretty early on in middle school, there was one season of my life, there was a guy named Mike who would come and he brutalized people. I mean, he loved to harass and humiliate people. And I still remember a day, like it was yesterday, I was sitting in front of my locker. And Mike walked in and he liked to do things like this to different people. And he went to different students and I was one of them. He came up to me and he shoved my head into the metal locker behind me and laughed and walked away. I want you to know when you experience things like that, it's often not the physical pain. It was uncomfortable. I didn't like that. Uh, but the emotional scars ran far deeper than what he did physically. Because in moments like that, I felt small and I felt weak and I felt shame. Now, I expect a lot of you know that the crazy thing about being bullied and pushed around by life is sometimes, often, it's not physical at all. And sometimes uh, the bullying and the pushing comes not from the outside, but from the inside. Have you ever been bullied by your own thoughts and your own ideas and convictions and judgments about yourself, especially in times of fear or in times of failure? I remember learning about this. One of our students when I was in campus ministry, we'll call her name Ann, that's not her name, but she gave me some insight on what she and several of the ladies in our ministry felt on a regular basis. Now, she wasn't speaking for all women and all time, but I've heard from enough that it, it speaks to a lot of them. And I didn't ever realize this before, but she said, Dean, you have no idea what happens when I'm sitting in a room, some of our friends are sitting in a room, and just another woman walks in. She said, all it takes another woman to walk in the room, and she said, I'm instantly sizing myself up in comparison to her, for whatever reason. A girl comes in, and she'll look at her, and she will compare herself in her look. She'll compare herself in her clothes or her hair or whatever the case may be. And, and all of a sudden, she said that, I recognize that voice. It's the same voice as the bully. From the outside, only it comes in the inside. It's that voice that says, you're not enough. You don't measure up. What do you do in those times, in seasons of your life, when you are pushed around and you feel small and weak and inadequate? It's one of the reasons we do what we do every week here. Various beginning point, just a simple beginning point is to say, can you find yourself in a larger story than just you? 
That's why do we come to Scripture again and again. It's why do we come to an epic like the Exodus story. Because when you come to Scripture and you see the way God relates to real people in real life, one of the things that you will see is that you are not alone. You are not the first person that has ever felt pushed around by the circumstances of life. You're not the first person who has felt condemned and judged by your own thoughts. Do you understand the entire book of Exodus? That's where the people of God have been. They started the story with outside bullying, right? For hundreds of years, they were oppressed and used as slaves to Pharaoh's empire. They were literally, physically bullied and oppressed. But when we come to this place in the story right here, this story begins with their own internal oppression because what the text has let us know before this and even in the middle of it, hints of it, uh, the people of God are standing on the brink of their most epic failure. They have literally disgraced and shamed themselves before God. They prostituted themselves to false gods while God was giving his heart to them. And they open this story in insecurity and fear. You are not alone if you've ever faced those thoughts and if you've ever been pushed around by life. Because we come to a story like this and we say, what did the people do in response? And more importantly, what does God do for us in moments like this? And I find that it's interesting, one of the first things that you see in the moment of their greatest fear and failure, what do they do? They pitch a tent. Of all things, (laughs) what do you do in the face of your greatest fear and your greatest failure? They pitch a tent. Moses chooses to do this. It's called the tent of meeting. And no, it's not the official one that will come right after this. And we read a few weeks ago for Mission Sunday how they collected and prepared and were gifted to construct the mobile thing we call a tabernacle, but it's the same language, tent of meeting. And I think this is a small symbol of what that tent will become for the rest of the book. And it's really powerful to think about the symbol of what this tent of meeting represents. There are other things we'll look at in a moment, but, but I want you to understand that what the tent of meeting represents is a place of becoming. It's a place of training to become what they were always intended to be. Here's a way to think about it. Did you know there are some scholars that say this little first part of the story is totally out of place? After the golden calf, and we have this uncertainty of what's going on. Again, listen to last week's sermon if you want to know. God's God's working with them some. But there's uncertainty here. And then there's this weird little text about the tent of meeting. And some people say, some scholars will say, it's out of chronological order. By the way, that's not uncommon in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with that because the Bible tells its story theologically, often not chronologically. And that's why you come to the book of John, for example, and John moves the cleansing of the temple in Jesus' ministry from the end to the beginning. He does it for theological reasons. We'll look at that sometime. There's a litany of three new things that Jesus inaugurates, and he doesn't mind moving the chronology. That's okay. But I don't think that's what's going on here. In fact, I think it's precisely the right timing to include this story and for Moses to do what he did. Because on the heels of their greatest failure, God, listen to me, gives them the opportunity to practice and train in what they should have done in the first place. Again, some of the scholars say this is out of place because they look too good here. 
They're standing as they should in honor of God and God's presence. They're bowing in worship. And there's this beautiful tension uh, between the familiarity and the intimacy of God, speaking face to face as a friend, but also the appropriate reverence of God. Those aren't two things pitted against each other. And they do in this tent of meeting worship everything they should have done in the last chapter where they're anything but reverent and they're anything but holy in their worship. Isn't it cool? Listen to me. On the heels of their greatest failure, God gives them a tent so they can practice what they should have done when they blew it. And I think that's precisely what Jesus and his grace does for Peter. If you've ever heard this familiar story at the end of the book of John. And Jesus encounters Peter and he asks him if he loves him. And here's the thing. If you're like me, I grew up being told that it's about the words and Jesus changes the words. It's not about the words for love. John is a good writer and Jesus is a good speaker. He uses variety. We can talk about that sometime. That's not the point. Why does Jesus encounter him? It's the first time Jesus looked him in the eye since the last time he looked him in the eye. And if you know anything about this story, what happened the last time Jesus looked at Peter? He epically failed in his life because they came and asked him, Peter, do you know this guy, Jesus? And he said, what? I don't know the man. And how many times, if you've heard this story before, did he say it? Three times. How many times? The end of the book of John. Oh, watch Jesus. How many times does he have Peter tell him the answer, do you love me? Three times. He gives him the opportunity to get it right this time, to do it right this time on the heels of his greatest failure. Isn't that awesome? And the tent of meeting is a tent of becoming. It's a tent of training into what we could be and what we could become in the hands of a gracious God. And I believe that all of us need a tent of some kind. All of us need places of becoming, of possibility, of reminding us who we were created to be and who we are at our best. We all need places like this. And I love that before God commands him how to build the tent of meeting, Moses does it on his own. He pitches the tent. It's his call. It means, by the way, our tents of meeting and our places of transformation can be different for different people. I know some of you. I see it when I go get my coffee. Some some men here have breakfast coffee and, and, uh, and, and regular fellowships with other men. It's more than one group. I know some... In, in our youth group, have FCA. That's their tent of meeting. In AFC, they'll have Intergen or they'll have uh, different class studies or whatever the case may be. And we have Bible classes and we have discipleship groups and we have any number of places. We have breakthrough, any number of places and ways that we are trained into habits that help us become more than we were called to be. We all need tents and places of becoming. Take you back to the story I began with and just see a way that this works in other settings. For me, when I was in middle school, the place of becoming for me was a dojo. Does anybody know what these are? Rex, we talked about this, didn't we? Rex, he's a man's man. He's got one in his house. Here's what happened for me when that year ended, oppression uh, at the hands of my, my classmate Mike. I... Just by coincidence, I decided to to learn martial arts. (laughs) 
And I remember it was a guy who built a dojo in his house. And it was kind of funny. There was training of all kinds, by the way. We would come in in the back, and he had this huge dog. And so the first thing we had to do is to, is to learn to walk lightly <laughs> and to watch for potential landmines there. And we would get there, and he had a curtain that he put down inside the main room. And it was those, those heavy wooden staircases that went down. And I remember punching sometime and going through the curtain and almost breaking my hand on it. There was a, it was not a classic dojo, but I'm telling you, it was formative for my life because there were other people that were gathering there to learn how to protect themselves and defend others and all of that. But I will be honest with you, in a summer of taking Taekwondo, like you're going to kick somebody in a fight, right? So in, in a summer of doing this, it wasn't some technique or hold or whatever that, that changed me. What changed me was up here. I was trained with a group of people to belong, and I was trained in confidence. And it made all the difference because I showed up in school the next year a different human being because of that dojo and that tent of meeting. Still remember sitting on the curb as the buses were pulling up, and Mike came and sat down next to me, and he gave me that look. And I just turned and looked at him, and I said, not this year. He was taken back for a moment, didn't really say anything. He left for a little while, and I will never forget this day in English class. He came back later, and he got up in my face, and I grabbed him by the lapels of his old jean jacket, and I threw him over a desk, and three inches away from his face, I said, not this year, and he never touched me again. Now, he probably could have beat me up, but I was a different person. Because a community of people said, we're going to come and train together and let you know what you could be in your best moments. That's why we do what we do when we gather as the people of God. We're training. We're learning. We're being reminded of what we can be in the future. By the way, that's why we keep putting up this discipleship pathway from time to time. Let me put that picture up again. I want you to think about it this way. These are tents of meeting. That's what our three movements are of our vision here. These are just tents of meeting. Opportunities be trained. They're dojos. We meet up individually in your personal spiritual practice. We meet up here. Why? Because we're changed and we are becoming something here. Why do we plug in to various levels of community, Bible classes and small groups and discipleship groups? Because we're training there. They're dojos, training us in habits of what we might become in the hands of a gracious God. And why do we have these practices of living out, serving here in this church, in this community and around the world, and living as witnesses of the resurrected Christ in our lives? Because we're practicing becoming more than we are now. And that's not because you don't measure up. It's because God already said, I've given you my grace. Now I'm going to make you even more. What a glorious thing. We all need a tent of meeting with God. Here's the thing, what you notice in this strange conversation in the middle of the story, understand that what this is all about is a central question we all ask in our lives. It's all about identity. It's all about asking the question, who are they as a people going to be? They're struggling with that. Remember, this story leaves off with them in the middle of being defined by building bricks for Pharaoh and about to construct a tent for the presence of God. But they don't know who they're going to be for the next season of their life. And they don't know who's leading them just yet. And they're asking the same questions I'm convinced we ask at every stage of our lives. Who are we going to be? 
worked in student ministry forever. And often I would tell my college students, please stop asking the lower level question. You can do that, but aim even higher than that. You know what the lower level question is, right? What am I going to do? Your job in college is not just to find out what you're going to do. Here's what I say all the time. Here's what, what's my major? What's my major? You'll change your major probably five times, I think, is the average. And by the way, even after you graduate, more and more in the culture today, people are changing their jobs five or six or seven times. Doesn't mean you don't ask that question. Do, but aim higher. The question in your student years is not what am I going to do. The question is who am I going to be as I do it? And were formed and shaped into that. And then I stopped doing just student ministry. And then I realized we all ask that question. Because then you get in your 30s and you're like, okay, what can I do to make a name for myself and to be something for me and my family? And then you get into your 40s. By the way, the midlife crisis is a real thing. Because all of a sudden you realize time is speeding up. And the time on the back window is going down. And then people say, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And they'll do crazy things. And then you get later in life. And then you start asking questions about legacy and what you leave behind. And all the time we're asking the question, what will distinguish us? What will identify us? What will define us? By the way, churches literally fight about this. So we have churches on one side, so to speak, and they'll say the identifying mark of the church is that we have truth on our side and we are right and we do it right, whatever the it is. By the way, nothing wrong with trying to do that. But they try to identify themselves as the church who gets it right, gets worship right, gets doctrine all right, gets salvation all right, or whatever the case may be. And then there are other churches that say, well, that's fine, but we want to be the church that actually does more than that. We want to do more service and more justice and more compassion and more inclusion. And we have all sorts of worship wars. But I want to tell you right here in this pivotal moment in the book of Exodus, God for all time gives us the defining, identifying mark of the people of God. And I long for this to be the defining mark of this church for the next hundred years. Did you catch it? Right in the middle of the text. Moses said, what else will distinguish us from all other people on the face of the earth? If what? Your presence doesn't Go with us. What is it that's the defining mark of the people of God? Yes, truth is important. It critically is. Yes, being more and loving and compassionate, it critically is. But what defines the people of God from the beginning is that God is found there. His presence is in that place. By the way, that's precisely what the New Testament says. When you come to the book of 1 Corinthians and they're fighting about all those things. They're fighting about doctrine and they're fighting about worship and they're fighting about leadership. And Paul says, here's my vision. The body of Christ with different people and different giftedness. Some leading, some not leading, but everybody using their gifts. And there's this incredible moment at the end of the passage where he says, this is what it should be like when people come to the gathering of the people of God. 1 Corinthians 14. I love this passage. Verse 24, he says that if an unbeliever or a seeker comes into your worship gathering and people are all using their gifts, he's speaking specifically about prophecy, but the whole context is everybody is using their gifts. He said, people come into this gathering, listen to this, verse 25, the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. Something happens inside of them. And oh, listen to this line. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really 
among you. That's the mark of the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're true. We're doing all the right stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the identifying mark. As imperfect as we are, when people come in the gathering and they walk away and they say, oh, that preacher is crazy and everything doesn't work exactly right, but I'll tell you what, God is there. Let that define us. I love our worship. I love what you do. I love that you incorporate our church. I love that. But I don't want to be the church that just has the coolest worship. I pray hard and I study hard to bring the word of God. And I know Kelly and everybody else does when they come up here. But I don't want to be the, the church with the best preacher or the best mission work. I love all of that. I want to be simply a place that when people come here, they know God is here. And they find the experience of God and their heart knows it because we give God space. That's what identifies the people of God. And by the way, Moses gets it. That's what explains this really weird prayer. You want one of the weirdest prayers in the Bible? Verse 18, he comes up to God and what does he say? Now, now, show me your glory. What? Did you read what it just said? Just a few paragraphs before, what has Moses been doing day in and day out? He's been going to the tent, and he's been talking to God face to face. Now, we know that's not literal. It's a metaphor, and God makes that clear. You can't fully see me. That's part of the tension there. But he's intimately experiencing God. And he has the audacity, after going into the tent with a pillar of cloud right in his face, to go up to God and say, by the way, show me your glory now. What's he saying? Here's the thing. Think about this in contrast to what we talked about last week. Whatever good thing that is in your life, when you pull it to the center of your life and you focus on that, listen, I'll tell you, it'll be nice and it'll be fun for a little while, but it will leave you empty at the end of the day. You know what happens when you encounter the living God? You want more. Even if you've seen the breathtaking resurrection of Jesus Christ, you pray for more. The folks that saw the resurrection say, God, enable us to do powerful things and to speak with boldness. I don't know about you, but every time I just taste him, I want more of God. Moses says, I don't care if I've seen you every day of my life. For the rest of my life, I want to know that you're right here and I want to see more of your glory. Oh, what do you do with these stained glass words? Glory. I love the way one writer puts it when he said, think about this image. Glory is to God what style is to an artist. Not good. Glory is to God what style is to an artist. What's your favorite musician? What's your favorite band? Can't you, with a person that you love to hear, the band you love to hear, you give you three or four notes. You know who it is. Why? Because you know their style. Oh, I love to read, you know, deep books and all that stuff, but I love a good John Grissom or David Baldacci book, man. I got to have my Krispy Kreme readings too, and that's it. I can tell you in two paragraphs when I'm reading a Grissom novel. I can tell you. Why? Because I know his style. Guys, wouldn't it be so wonderful if we so deeply and regularly practice together the presence of our God that we know his style? Then when you're praying about the relationship in your life and you're asking for discernment, when you're asking for the next step of your journey and you hear a voice inside, you will know it when it is God speaking. I want to know his glory. I want to know his style. Don't you? So let's end with this section here. Here's the thing. 
All of this builds up to let you know the secret. The secret of this story and really is the secret of the book. Let me tell you, it's not about the tent. It's about the cloud. It's not about the tent. And sometimes we get so caught up in constructing our religious activities to make room for God, we forget it's always not been about the tent. It's been about the pillar who comes and fills the tent with his glory. Moses builds the tent of meeting and God comes and stands before the tent. By the way, it was an incre- isn't this wonderful about our God? It's an incredibly personal image to Israel. Remember back in chapter 13 when God is leading them out of slavery into the wilderness? It says the pillar of cloud was where? Right in front of them leading the way. And all of a sudden, the Egyptian army came out to kill them. What did the pillar do? Do you remember this? In chapter 14, it says the pillar went around behind them and divided the army of the Egyptians from the vulnerable people of God. And that's why the psalmist says from beginning, you are the one who leads me. You are my refuge and my fortress, and you are my rear guard. God has you going forward, and he's got your back. Unless you think that's it, you know what's amazing? Study this text, and I realize it is so personal for Moses too. You know, his brother and sister betray him. Have you heard the story before? And they rebel against his leadership. You know what God does? The pillar of cloud comes down in front of the tent of meeting and said, that's my boy. You leave him alone. Deuteronomy 31, 15, on the brink of the promised land, God comes up to Moses and said, it's time for you to die. And what does it say? A pillar of cloud comes down from the tent of meeting. Some of you have lost loved ones even recently. Do you know in the moment of your greatest fear, God is the most personally and powerfully present? God says, it's all about the cloud, and I will show up everywhere and anywhere you will ever need me. And that's what they wanted to know from the very beginning. Do you know how the book of Exodus ends? Do you know how the entire book ends? Go read it, chapter 40, verse 33. You know what it says? Moses finished constructing the official tent of meeting. And before, he kind of hammers the last nail. You know what it says? Can you guess? Pillar of cloud comes down. And the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And Moses couldn't even go in because the glory of God was so great. Do you know when Solomon constructed the temple, the physical building of the tent of meeting, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, they had a worship order and it was all ready to go. I long for this worship service one day. Anytime I've ever talked about this text, I pray for it. The worship order was ready. The worship team was ready. The priests were ready. And they couldn't go in because the glory of God filled the temple. He said, it's about me. And it said for the rest of their existence, the pillar never left them. When the pillar moved, they moved. When the pillar sat, they sat. And the presence of the glory and the wonder of God was right there. It's not about the tent. It's not about the religious activity. It is about making space for the glory and the wonder of God. I love the way one person puts it. When you make space for God, he loves to fill it up. That's why we're here. Some years ago, I saw this. Oh, I saw this living I might have told you before, I think, about our daughter was named after a woman named Elise Robinson and the way she loved her husband in a nursing home we would go to in our campus ministry years just as students and visit them. But I didn't tell you about her husband, Ed. Once a month, we would go there and we would sing for him. And a lot of students would float around to different folks. I always just beeline to Ed. 
Ed would wear a different hat every week, sometimes in honor of his service as a veteran, sometimes his favorite sports team or something crazy. He always had some hilarious joke. He sat there in his wheelchair, paralyzed from the neck down, but he always lit us up when we came to visit him. And there was one time we visited, we said, Ed, is there anything we could do for you outside of this home? His wife lived at home. He lived in the nursing home. His face lit up when we asked this. He said, yeah, there actually is. Because uh, his life before, when he could use his full body, he loved to work on things. He loved to build things. And he said, I would love it if you would finish something I started years ago. I want you to finish a tool cabinet for me. I wish it looked like this. (laughs) I don't have a picture of the one we did. But I want you to fix this cabinet for me. And I still remember the day when they pulled up in the van and they lowered him down in his wheelchair and he got out. It was It's the first time I'd ever seen him out of that nursing home, and the only other time I would see that is when I saw his body in the casket when we honored his life. He rolled into that garage, and he was the man in charge. I loved it. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew where he wanted the tools. He knew where to, how to construct it. And he coached us all along the way. And I will tell you, I'm actually proud of what we finished building. We did a pretty good job. It doesn't look this great, but it was a good job. But I realized something. It wasn't about the building. And it wasn't about the cabinet. It was about a space and a place to be with Ed. It was just about making space. And that cabinet and that garage was a tent of meeting with a man that I respected and loved. And it gave us space to hear his laughter and hear his jokes and hear his wisdom. The wisdom of one who had built before. And the best part was seeing the smile on his face when we had built it just the way he planned it. And that's what it's all about. It's not about the building. We talk about the mission and our vision and our activity and all of that. The adventure we've been talking about all along, listen to me, the adventure we're joining is not an adventure of activity. It's an adventure of God himself. God's the adventure. And we come to join this, to join him. And yes, we get to build and serve and do and meet and all of that. But it's not about the building. It's in the process. We get to see his joy. And we get to hear his laughter. And we get to take in his wisdom. And guys, I can't wait for that day when we all gather together. Yes, in gratitude. And we see the smile on his face when he says, well done. Because by my power and my grace, you did it the way I planned it. That's the adventure. And he never stops filling the spaces we give him with his glory. So as we end in prayer here, I just want to leave 30 seconds of silence. Maybe just a little time of silence. And maybe it's to kick off the season and you say thank you to this God. Or maybe you ask him, is there there a step that you want me to take to explore you more and to train more into this incredible life? Whatever it is, there's a moment. Let's just sit in silence and I'll bring us out in prayer. Father, we come to you now.
glorious Father. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of Moses and the Israelites. God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How could we ever thank you enough for taking us in the moments of our greatest fears and our greatest failures and taking us right back into your heart and training us all over again? How can we ever thank you enough for when we give you the slightest bit of space, you fill it with life and glory and wonder? And Father, that's our prayer. Train us. Please train us every day to see your face. We pray in this church with Moses' prayer years and years ago. We long to see more of your glory so that we might reflect it to the world around us. For the sake of and in the name of the glorious resurrected Christ, we pray.